2 Corinthians chapter 12. Last week we began a three-part series, which was last week, this week, and uh, we have a speaker next week, so it will be two weeks from today. Uh, on, on, it's your choice. Heaven or hell, you choose. A lot of things that happen to our life, we don't get a choice over. You don't get a choice over your parents, in most cases. You don't get a choice over the weather. Uh, you don't get a choice over a lot of things in our life that are just outside of our control. But the most important thing that can ever happen to you, the most important situation in your life, the most important place to live, the most important anything in your life, because it is eternal and is ultimate, that most important thing you get to choose. You get to choose where you're going to spend eternity. We learned last week there are only two choices. There's hell and there's heaven. We don't, haven't talked a lot about that. You don't hear a lot about these discussed in, in churches today, at least in the circles that most of us travel in and listen to and watch on TV. But it is, it, it is, these are subjects that ought to be talked about more because most of the other things we talk about are ultimately temporary and short-lived because they have to do with our life here. And we spend so little time, so little time thinking about, preparing for, and looking to and trusting in what's going to happen when we breathe our last breath. We saw last week that the book of Hebrews says that it's appointed for every man. Say every man. Amen. Say that means me. It, it's appointed to every man to die once. Whether you like it or not, resist it or not, whatever you do, there's going to come a day or a moment when you breathe your last breath in that body, either because you leave this earth or because Jesus comes back and you leave this earth. And the Bible says that when you breathe your last breath, you're going to go forever to one of two places. Why is it we don't spend more time thinking about that? Why is it we don't spend more time studying that? Why is it we don't spend more time talking about that? I think it's because it's uncomfortable to us and therefore we kind of put it off. If you want to know how, what that's like, talk to a life insurance salesman because their job is to sell you something you don't want to know anything about and yet you know inside you need it. Well, I'm here today as a life insurance salesman, an eternal life insurance salesman, and you need it. <laughs> we all need it. So we spent some time, spent some time, we spent all of last Sunday in our time together looking at some things the Bible said about hell. And we could spend weeks on either one of these subjects, but I just, I, don't, I just have a sense to hit them quickly, make us aware of these, and then there's something else we need to move on to. So we talked about hell, that it's eternal. We talked about it's a place of eternal fire. and It's a place of unimaginable pain, unimaginable horror, unimaginable fear. The very worst day you've ever had in your life the very worst day you know of anybody that's ever had in this life is nothing compared to what that's like. And it's forever, it never ends, it never decreases, and there's this all constant awareness of hopelessness. There's also an intense aware of loneliness. Intense aware of loneliness. You may be among a bunch of people there, but you're not going to have any relationship with them. We ended by talking about some people, you know, are glib about this and say, well, all my friends are going to hell. I might as well go there. We can have a party together. There's no parties in hell. 
You're not going to have any time of fellowship. You're going to be in nothing but agony and pain and crying out. The Bible calls it a place of wailing. That's weeping, outpouring of, of tears and gnashing of teeth. That's through the agony of going there. And there is no end to it. And that's what we talked about in more detail last week. Today, we get to look at the other alternative. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about um, what the Bible means by heaven. And there's, there's, not, there's not a whole lot in here about it. Um, as I studied it out, it was amazing how little there is. And, and, and I think that's because God wants us aware of it, but he doesn't want us so lost in it. There, you know, there's, there's, there are people in the body of Christ, and, and we go through cycles. And, uh, and, and, you know, generation before, we had songs and preaching was all about heaven. And, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a glorious day that will be. And, but they got so conscious of heaven, so heavenly minded, they were no earthly good. But I think now we've gone to the other extreme. We're so earthly minded, we live our life just like the rest of the world does with no consciousness of the next life. So we need to bring it into a place of balance, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit about today. But um, so I think that's part of partly why the Bible doesn't give us, you know, a, a lot. Well, it's interesting. I thought about this this morning. You know, if you ever you're planning a vacation, and we've done that before. So you go to a travel agent, and and we have some travel agents that, that come here, and you know, you go to a travel agent, and now a lot of this you can do online. And what do they have for you? They have brochures, and those brochures contain pictures and small descriptions, but they don't give you an atlas. They don't give you an in-depth study of that country. They give you just enough pictures so you want to go there. Right? And I think the Bible is kind of a travel brochure to give you just enough picture of heaven so you want to go there and just enough pictures of hell so you don't want to go there. So we're going to turn the page today and look at the travel brochure pictures of heaven. Do you find 2 Corinthians 12? All right. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And we're going to just read verse 3 here, talking about a vision that he had. Actually, it's verse uh, 2. Well, let's go to verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to, you, I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. I'll talk about the visions and revelations of the Lord I've had. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and this is obviously him, whether in the body or not, I don't know. Whether, whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. Isn't that interesting? So to be caught up into the third heaven tells us that there must be at least three heavens. Now, Jewish tradition, some Jewish traditions even taught there were up to seven heavens. But we're just talking about what the Bible says here. And so there obviously are three heavens that the Bible refers to. It doesn't go into a lot of detail about it. And I'm going to tell you what I believe they are. I believe the first heaven is the one that's listed in, in Genesis 1, verse 14 through 19, where it talks about God creating the firmaments which is the physical heavens around here where the stars... It's what the, what's the uh, astronomers look at and what we see at night when we look up there. It's the, starry, it's, the, uh, it's the starry element. It's the natural element that you can see because Genesis is an account of the creation. Genesis 1 and 2 are the account of the creation of this material realm. And all those stars that are thousands of light years away, I don't care if they're thousands of light years away, they can still be seen, therefore they're part of this natural realm. And I believe it's the universe that Genesis 1 is talking about. 
But there's a second heaven that I believe the Bible teaches about, and that's, I'll give you the reference to it, we're not going to turn there. And there's two places where I believe it talks about, and maybe others that I didn't think of. One is in Matthew 12, 43, and we referred to this before. It's a little, about three verses in there where Jesus is talking about um, casting demons out of people, and he's talking about if you cast demons out of somebody and you don't do anything else, he said, what happens when a spirit leaves a house It travels about in waterless or dry places, seeking another place to dwell. And if you don't put something in that house that's positive, that's alive, then they will come back with seven others worse than the first. And I think those waterless places he's talking about is what I believe is the second heaven, which is the spiritual atmosphere around this earth. In Ephesians 6, it's around verse 12, It talks about, for we wrestle not against principalities and powers. Excuse me. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Look to your left and look to your right. You don't wrestle against them. If it's your spouse, you don't wrestle against them. You wrestle against principalities and powers that may use them, but they're not your enemy. And Paul's talking there about a spiritual warfare, and he's saying you need to know who your enemy is. Now, last year we did a series of Wednesday nights on the armor of God, and we talked in depth about that. So I'm not going to go into that. But notice what the Apostle Paul here says. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly places. Well, that's not heaven where God lives because they're not principalities and powers. They're not demonic spirits ruling there, are there? So there must be somewhere in between there and the starry sky that you see on a beautiful uh, moonless night. And that's the spiritual atmosphere around here. The third heaven is the heaven where God lives, that Paul was called up into. And that's the one we're going to look at. So sometimes you'll see heaven referred to, in fact, I want to give you a few terms that are used And there are more. I just want to give you a flavor of some of them. Um, It's where God dwells. Uh, Isaiah 66.1 says, Heaven is my throne. Heaven is my throne where I live. And earth is my footstool. Um, The first we're looking at is where Paul saw the third heaven. This heaven, the third heaven where God dwells, is some places called the highest heavens. Sometimes it's called the heaven of heavens. It's called paradise. Paul later on calls it paradise here. Jesus said to the other, one of the, one of the uh, thieves on the cross next to him, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. All right. So it's paradise. Sometimes in Hebrews it's called a city whose builder and maker is God. It's also called the holy city. And we'll look at some other things about that. So the main point here is understand that what we're, what we're talking about. We're not talking about the heavens that are referred to in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the heavens and the earth. That's the physical earth, the physical heavens here. We're not talking about the spiritual atmosphere around this earth where Satan and his demons operate. But we're talking about the heaven because that's not our destination. Our destination is the heaven where God dwells, the heaven that Paul had a vision of, and the heaven that we'll look at that Isaiah had a vision of and, uh, and Stephen had a vision of. All right. Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about it, but let's look at some of the pictures, some of the, 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 the travel brochure pictures that we have. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6.
Now, have you ever had the experience of looking at uh, a travel log or a, uh, a travel brochure of a, you know, maybe two or three pictures of a, of a country or maybe it's a place and then you go there and it's not quite what you thought it was? Because it's kind of hard to, to take the whole feel of a, of a place and, and put it down into a little picture. <clears throat> and and these, are, these are professionals that are trying to take pictures and describe it in such a way that you want to go there. What we're going to look at right now is a couple of travel pictures, travel log pictures. The problem here is it's not like looking at Ireland or Italy or, or California or somewhere like that. This writer is trying to take things that he saw that are beyond, infinitely beyond his mind's ability to grasp and understand and his vocabulary's ability to put into words. Understand this, that we communicate through words. You understand what I'm trying to say this morning because I'm speaking words. And those words that I'm choosing, my brain chooses to select a word out of my vocabulary and speak it out. You hear that word and you find where it is in the library of your vocabulary and you tie it together. Whatever that word means to you is what you're going to hear. It may be different or a little different than what I meant by it, which is why I try to spend time explaining to you what I mean by what I'm talking about so that you were a little closer to talking about the same thing. Now, that's one thing between you and me. It's another thing when you take a man like Isaiah who's been in a moment caught up into, into, into the throne room and he's looking at things that his mind can't grasp and understand and then he's going to try to find words in his vocabulary to describe to you and me thousands of years later what that was like. So we'll hear things in here, and then we're going to look at, at, a, at, a, at an insight or a vision that the Apostle John had and understand what they're trying to do. They're looking at things that, 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 are, that, are, that are beyond their mind's ability to grasp and understand. So they're going to try to find words, because the only thing they can do, that close as possible associate with what they saw. So that's why it may seem strange to us. So what you've got to hear behind the words is, is, is the impact of those words that, that what they saw had on them more than the details of the words. I think when we go through some of these visions, we get hung up on the details and we get confused by the details and we sort of shut down. But what we're looking at is the impression of what they saw had on them because there's no way your mind or our my mind can really picture what they're describing and their mind couldn't put it into words sufficient for us to be able to do that. Everybody with me? Understand what we're talking about? Okay. Let's open the travel brochure and let's look in Isaiah chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So he has a vision into the throne room of God in heaven, high and lifted up, and the train or the trail of his robe filled the temple, and above it, above the throne, stood seraphim, that's one type of angel. Each one had six wings. Now, whether it's physically wings or not, we don't know, but the only word he could come up with that was the closest thing to what he saw was wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Have you ever seen these concerts? 
where they, you know, they have these smoke machines that pour smoke out. They don't have smoke pots in heaven. Nor do they smoke pot in heaven, but they don't have smoke pots in heaven. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> and they do this for some effect. But the smoke in heaven, again, he's trying to find words that in his vocabulary that can tie up with what he sees and there's no way he can find a word because this is the glory of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God. Back in, 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 in Exodus, it talks about when God came down and dwelt in that tent, that tabernacle and he led them through the wilderness and he said at night he was a pillar of fire. I don't believe it was a holy blowtorch. But the only word they could use to describe the brilliance of this thing was fire and the intensity of it. And in the day, they were led by a pillar of smoke or cloud. So God's presence, when he's manifested himself on the earth at times, has sometimes been with what they described as a cloud. But I don't believe it was fog. It was a dense presence that rolled in. I've known preachers that have been in services, especially back in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, the pouring out of the Spirit in the day, in the Pentecostal revival, where they described a, a cloud that would roll in from the back of a, of a sanctuary. And it was, it was the presence of God. God reveals himself, his presence, in different forms in the Bible when he comes among men. Sometimes it's been with thunder and lightning. He did that on the top of the mountain when he came to meet his people in Exodus 19 and 20. Sometimes it's been with this smoke presence. And there's a verse, I think it's in Deuteronomy or Numbers, I've forgotten where it is, that says, God cannot reveal his complete form to man. So he reveals himself in clouded ways. Why? Because if he revealed himself, he said, in his true form, we'd make an image of it and worship the image. So God reveals aspects of himself and parts of himself. And the problem is, is that whoever's seeing this, the only way they can communicate that is to look back in the backlog of their vocabulary and try to find some word that somehow attempts to approximately come near what that is like. And that's what Isaiah is trying to do here. All right. So the smoke of his presence, the heaviness of his presence the weightiness of his presence filled the temple. Verse 5. So I said, this is, see, this is now, this is now we're going to find out what impact this had on him. He's tried to describe it. But now what we have, this we, this we know we can relate to because this is the impact of what he saw he ha- had on him. Now, in order to really understand this, you've got to understand a little bit about who Isaiah was. Isaiah was raised as, a, as, 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 as of, of, of royal heritage. Isaiah was used to being in the court of the king. Isaiah was highly educated, very intelligent, very articulate. And so he is a man, and he's a very righteous man. And this man, upon seeing the throne of God... And upon being in this place, this is his reaction, his immediate reaction. Woe is me, for I am undone, or destroyed, or cut off. 
Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, his first reaction. See, we're, so, we're aware of ourselves. Every one of us this morning have an image of ourselves. Some better than others. We have an image of how good we are. We have an image of where we need to grow. We have an image, and most of us have some kind of image, I'm not saying we're right, about where we stand in relation to other people around us in terms of how good we are and how bad we are. That's, I'm not saying we're right. I'm just saying that's the image we have. Some of us have an image of ourselves that's a little better than what we really are. And some have an image of ourselves that's a little worse than we really are. But the point is we all have some picture of ourselves, some image of ourselves, and so did Isaiah. But the moment he saw the presence of God and who he is, his immediate reaction was to go on his face and say, Oh, woe is me. It's one thing when God says woe to you because he's trying to show you something you didn't see. Isaiah is saying woe to himself because he sees who God is. And the moment he sees who God is, he realizes who he is compared to God on his own. And that's what true humility is. True humility is not tearing yourself down. True humility is seeing who you are in relation to who God is, what you're like on your own in relation to what God is like. What we're seeing here is true worship. Notice he's not singing. There's nothing wrong with singing worship. There are many ways of expressing worship, but what true worship is, is when you begin to get a revelation in your spirit of who this God really is, of the holiness of this God. That's what he's reacting to, the holiness of God. He had an image of himself, and I don't know what it is because we don't have an insight into that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he thought he did pretty well. Because compared to a lot of the people, look where he worked. He worked in the, in the throne. He worked in the, in the palace. He worked, you know, he's a prophet of God. And here he is now, you know, he's Isaiah. There are only a few prophets that wrote, that are, whose names are in the Bible who authored a book. And he's one of them. He's one of the principal ones. And here he is, Isaiah. And he sees who God is. And he looks at who he is. And his reaction is, woe is me. It's not a fear that causes him to run away. It's a reverence that causes him to go in his face. Because he has a revelation of who this God is and how holy. See, we say, sing holy, holy to the Lord. We say holy all the time. But we really, really unless the Spirit of God shows us something, we really do not understand what holiness is. It's a concept we have in our head. But it's who God is. And that's not our fault, because you can't see something unless God's revealed it to him. Okay, let's move on here. Let's go over to... Um, He's, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. I now know what I'm really like because I've seen the ultimate standard. 
And then what happens is one of the seraphim flew over. They take a, a coal off of the fire, which is the fire of incense, which we haven't had a chance to get into and explain to you. And he touches his lips to cleanse his lips. In other words, God's saying, you can now speak for me. You're now qualified. to. Speak. Isn't it interesting? We're so quick to speak for God. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. God spoke this to me. Thus saith the Lord. When he saw who God is and his holiness, he knew he was not qualified to speak for God unless God cleansed him to speak for him. There's a verse where Jesus says that we'll be ultimately judged because of our useless or worthless words that are spoken. And I believe one of those is the times we've said, the Lord said this and the Lord said that. And the first time the Lord knew about it is when you said it. Some of you would get that on the way home. He could only speak for a holy God when God had cleansed his lips to speak. We're so quick to speak for God without a heart that's connected to him. Because when you speak words to somebody, you communicate to them what's in your heart. And if we don't have the heart of God for that person, we have no right to speak to them, even if we think we're speaking his word in his name, unless you first of all have his heart for them. We need to be much more careful about throwing his name around and speaking for his name when we're not so careful about other things that come off those lips also. James says, out of our mouth comes criticizing people and blessing people. And yet you can't have sweet water and pure water, foul water come out of the same fountain. He says it shouldn't be so. We do that because we really don't know who he is or we've lost sight of who he is. We really don't have a respect for his holiness and his awesomeness and who he is that we're purporting to represent. I stand before you each Sunday in in a respectful reverence and fear, the right kind of fear, for the responsibility that's entrusted to me because my words can have an impact on you and lead you one way or another. And I've got to be very careful to make sure that my heart is right. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart. We heard about that yesterday in the marriage seminar. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. I didn't plan to get off on that this morning, but it's, it was, it's worth it to get into. All right. Okay. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. We've got to move along. Again, these are travel pictures. Inspire you to want to go there. Don't have to go there today, but we can make plans. My wife likes to have plans. We don't always do it that well, but make plans and then dream about it. We're going there. Boy, when the fall comes, there's, there's, a, there's a 
trip we're planning. And she's already talking about thinking about it. Oh, boy, what's this going to be like? Well, we need to do that with this trip. That's what we're here to do today. Revelation chapter 4. Same thing here. The apostle John has a revelation into heaven. And he can only do the same thing Isaiah did. He can only use the words of his vocabulary to try to describe the things he saw, which were indescribable. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open into heaven. And the voice that I heard was like the trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper or sardis or stone. God's not covered with jewels. These were brilliant colors that he was trying to describe. And there was a rainbow around the throne, and the appearance was like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. I don't believe there's lightning going out and thunder. I believe the lightning is, that's the only word he could describe, to brilliant rays of light. God is the source of light. God is the source of light. Says when, we'll get there at the end, I believe, I trust we'll get there, is that when the, when there's a, the new heaven and the new earth comes down here, it says there, that you're not going to need light bulbs. Incandescent or condescent, fluorescent, whatever. You won't need energy-saving light bulbs because you, you won't need the sun, won't need the moon because the entire place is lit by the glory that comes from the face of God. It's lit. The source of light, the source of it. The source of it is His face, His glory. And I think, have you ever seen a, 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 a crystal or something when the sun hits it? You may have a, you know, these, these things you hang in the window and the sunlight hit, and all of a sudden there's a beam of light goes out here like that. That's a reflection of the sunlight off of it. But I believe as God turns and things, light shoots out of him. Shoots, I can't be contained in him. It shoots out of him. And the thunders is just, it's because to, to, to John, his ears, you know, sounds relative. Some of you right now, this sounds loud. Some of you, it sounds not loud enough. Because your eardrums hear it in different intensities and different, different volumes, different decibels. So John's ears were used to a certain sound level, but the level of everything there is so much more real. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So much more real that every little sound was loud to him. Every little sight was big and powerful to him because his capacity of his senses was, was so far exceeded the capacity of his senses. That's what I believe this was lightnings and thunders coming out of it. Because that's all he knew how to describe it. Before, let's go to verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and the back. Again, he's trying to describe what this looked like. They may not physically have eyes. I don't know. But he's trying to grasp it. Don't get hung up on that. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature was like the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings, were full of eyes around them, a lot of similarities with Isaiah, what Isaiah saw. And they did not rest day or night singing, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who sits forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you, your will, they exist and were created. Let's go over to verse chapter 5. Um, verse 6. I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as yet although it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now he who had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us but to God by your blood. Verse down to verse 11. I looked and I saw the voice of many angels and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which was in heaven and on earth and under the earth such as were in the sea and all that were in them, in them I heard singing, saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down again and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Acts chapter 7. This is a quick insight, quick snapshot by a man named Stephen, who having testified, they took him out to the edge of the city to stone him to death. And while stones are raining down on him, While stones are raining down on him, Acts 7, this is what he saw, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran on him with one accord. And they stoned him. In verse 59, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Something about here. Again, it's the impression. Here's a man. The elders of the city have taken him outside, thrown him out into a pit, and they're throwing rocks at him to kill him. While those rocks are raining down on him, he looks up. There's a lesson in this. Whatever Satan's raining down on you, look up. Look up. Look up. Because that's where your answer is. As he was, as they were killing him, stoning him to death, he looks up. And what happens? He sees heaven open 
and he sees God sitting on his throne and Jesus at his right hand. That's his vision of where he's about to go. Instead of crying out, instead of being fearful, instead of getting angry, his face begins to glow. This is supernatural. We talked last week. When you come to that point of knowing you're facing your last moments in this flesh, that's a time when your when your philosophy, your theories, your psychology all fall away. Because it's not a time for theory. It's not a time for opinions. It's not a time for ideas. The rubber's about to hit the road. You're going to find out what's real and what's not real. You're going to find out what's true and what's not true. And at that point, that's when the next life becomes very real to you. That's what's happening to Stephen. It's so real to him. It's more real to him than the rocks that are hitting his head. I want that to sink in, no pun intended. (laughs) And maybe we do need some rocks hitting our head. It's so, that picture of heaven, and it's not a picture in this case, he's seeing it in the spirit. It's so real to him, the rocks hitting his head, pounding at his body, beginning to destroy organs and injure and damage him. He has no awareness of those. Kind of like back in the garden when they were so conscious of God, they had no awareness that they had no clothes on. They were, no, were not aware of their body. They were not aware of this natural material world. He's got a glimpse into this next life, an actual glimpse by his spirit in there. And as he becomes more conscious of that, he becomes less conscious of this world and this life and this body that's now dying by those stones to the point that he goes on and says, Father, forgive them. That's not something you do in your flesh. That's not something you do in your mind because it's the right thing to do. That's one thing to sit in church and say, yeah, we need to forgive people. It's another thing when they're spitting at you, they're cursing at you, they're tearing their clothes, gnashing their teeth, and throwing rocks to kill you. That's when you don't fake it. That's when the real comes out. For those of you who were here yesterday, that's when the blue and the pink beads come out. <laughs> he sees something that is so much more real to him, so much more hopeful to him, so much more confident to him that he's not even aware of what's happening to his body because he's more aware of who he really is as a spirit man. Well, let's talk about the th- few things we do know about this place. As we go on in our... Now we're going to go to the print. We've looked at the pictures in the travel brochure. What we do know is one thing, it's eternal. It's never changing. Second Corinthians 4.18 says, Paul says, for, verse 17, he says, For we look not at the things that are seen, which is the natural realm, but the things that are not seen, that's the spirit realm. For the things that are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things that are not seen, the spirit realm, is eternal. Eternal means it doesn't change. It has no beginning. It has no end. It is always the same. Everything around us changes, has beginnings, has ends, is new, gets old, is shiny, becomes rusty, buff and intact, begins to sag, 
get wrinkled. We won't go there too far. What you had full of gets thinner. (laughs) Change. But in the spirit realm in heaven, there's no change. But we talked last week, there's no change in hell either. That's why there's no hope. There's no change there either. There's no time there. It just goes on and on and on. It's a holy place. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says it's a holy place. Psalms 16, let's go there. Verse 11. Verse 11. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. We talked last year about the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is based on the principles of God and truth. That Satan came in and perverted those principles in the garden and turned them upside down by perverting them. And then you and I were born into and been raised in and saturated with and indoctrinated with those perverted principles. One of the perversions of those principles is that, is that uh, anything that's holy and righteous and good is boring. That's what's being sold in our world today. If it's good, it's boring. If it's righteous or holy, it's boring. The only things that are fun is to do what you want to do and have your way and have, have you know, let your, let your flesh go loose. That's what's fun. And so when, when, the, when the Word of God says that the only place that the act that creates human life is authorized by God is in a covenant marriage, not just two people living together who say, I love one another, but have made a covenant before God and with each other and the presence of others that I'm committed to you before God for the rest of my life, no matter what comes. In that context, God has authorized the physical act that produces life. Outside of that context, God has not ordained it or permits it. That's why it's sin. It's fornication. It's adultery if it's done outside of a marriage if you're married. And it is sin in God's eyes. And since God's always right, it's sin. It's not because God's trying to take fun away from us. God's trying to protect us. So the illusion out there, the perverted principle is, well, the only thing that is fun is to do the things that are, 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 are you know, lustful or whatever my desires, just my desires go loose. But that's a perverted principle because the Word of God tells us that in the presence of a holy God is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Pleasure is God's idea, not Satan's. Satan can't create anything. Pleasure doesn't come from Satan. He cannot give you pleasure. Listen to me again. He cannot give you something he doesn't possess. So when the world, which is he's the God of right now, when the world's offering you pleasure, it cannot give it to you. It's bait in a trap that's designed to ensnare you, not give you pleasure. 
So it smells good. It looks good. It, the promise that's given to you is, your boy, you bite into this. You take that drink. You smoke that weed. You go off with that girl. You do this, and it's going to satisfy your desires. That's bait in a trap. Talk to somebody that's hooked on drugs and find out how much pleasure there is because it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give pleasure permanently. You have to continue to increase it and increase it and increase it and it costs more and more and more and you're more deeply and more deeply ensnared in that trap by the lie and the deceit at the beginning that this is where pleasure is. He doesn't have it to give you. Because pleasure comes from the right hand of God. In His presence is fullness of joy. You know there's a difference between happy and joy? Happy is nice. It's kind of an emotion. Joy is a state of heart and life. In his presence, his fullness. Now, fullness is a relative term, depending on the one that has it. So if you go to, uh, I don't know, if you go to, to, to maybe your next door neighbor and, you know, and, 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 and they're full of money, they, they have all, you know, all the money they have, they give you everything they have, they're full of it, they give you what they're full of it, but you go to Bill Gates... When he's full of money, he's full of more money than your next-door neighbor is. Well, we're talking about God and what his capacity is for joy. By the way, he's the source of it. So it's a place of unspeakable joy. It's a place of unspeakable pleasure. It's a place of great peace. He's the source of peace. It's a place of rest. Hebrews talks about enter in, labor to enter into the rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary, tired, and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The ultimate rest is in the presence of God in heaven. The ultimate weariness is in hell separated from him. You think you've worked hard and had a hard time now. Try hell out and find out what that's like. It's a place of majesty. We looked at a little sample of that in Isaiah and also in, uh, in, uh, in Revelation. And ultimately, what behind all this, it's the place of God's presence, His absolute... You know, we, we sing sometimes in here and we say, oh, I can feel the presence of God. It's, it's not the presence of God. It's the odor of or the sense of the presence of God. Ever walk through a mall or, you know, and there's a perfume store or something like, as you walk by, you go, ooh, ooh, there's something nice over there. That's not the perfume. It's the odor of the perfume. You know, you're not drinking the perfume. You're not touching the perfume. You're, You're sensing a presence that there is a perfume because you're sensing the evidence of it. 
But when you're in the manifest presence of God, well, we get a little sample because Moses was there at the top of a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he didn't eat and he didn't drink anything. Now, it's possible to not eat for 40 days. People have gone on a fast of that long. By the way, he wasn't on a fast. He just didn't need to eat. He wasn't in agony saying, oh my goodness, how many more days do I got to go through this? Oh, because you go on a fast, there's cycles you go through. He didn't go through any of the cycles. But the real evidence is you can't go for 40 days without drinking water. How could he do that? Because he was in the manifest presence of life. God is the source of life. And nothing can die in the presence of the source of life. Moses' body was sustained by the power of the life coming from the presence of the one that he was with. That's just a flavor of what this is like. Okay. So all of these, peace, joy, happiness, pleasure, holiness, majesty, they're all there because they come from Him. He is the source of everything. Okay. Now, heaven is a place, last week we said that hell was created by God but not intended by Him for people. And we'll talk in two weeks about why people go there. He didn't intend to go there. But heaven was created for us. Heaven was created as our ultimate abode to be in His presence. And when you get to the end of the book, you find out when God recreates everything and brings down a new heaven and new earth, the purpose of it is for Him to physically dwell among men. We'll talk about that a little later in the year for him to physically dwell. God's always wanted to dwell physically among his people. When he created the garden in the begin with, which, by the way, was called paradise, when he created the garden in the begin with, he did it so he could walk and be with his man and woman, so he could be with them and be among them, physically be among them. Their sin, their rebellion, separated them from God. And everything God has done from that third chapter of Genesis, all up through the end of Revelation, is to restore again what he had in the first two chapters to begin with, because that's the desire of his heart. So it's not his desire at all that any man should die and go to hell. In fact, the, the, the Psalm 130. Nine says, he'll go down to the gates of hell. He'll send his spirit to the gates of hell with you, pleading with you not to go. But if you're determined to go, he can't stop you because he gave you a will of your own, which is why this series is entitled, You Choose. All right. So it's not intended for man. Okay. Let's talk quickly about some of the benefits of going there because this is a travel brochure. First of all, the Bible tells us that in heaven there's victory over death. There's no sting of death if heaven is your, is your destination. It's like taking my suit coat off. You take off this life, and now you're free from everything that restricts you. By the way, the only avenue Satan has at you is through your flesh. 
The only way he can tempt you is through your flesh. If you're a Christian, the only thing that's ever gotten you in trouble is your flesh. And you leave your flesh here and take on a new body there. So in heaven, you don't have to deal with temptation. In heaven, you don't have to deal with the devil. In heaven, you don't have to deal with being tired or weary or discouraged. You don't have to deal with all the stuff you've had to deal with. This is the struggle that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 when he says we've got to go through, there's a struggle we have to go through. There's still a groaning that's inside of us waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. He's talking about when we get our new body and we don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Okay. It's a place of rest from your struggles of the flesh and Satan. It's a place of fellowship with uh, other saints that have gone on before us. Hebrews 12.1 says, says, having such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us, that's to all the people that are listed in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 11. It goes on to say that, the, that we don't come to, a, to Mount Zion. We don't come to a city, where there's, to a mountain where there's thunder, in, in, which is referring to Genesis, uh, Exodus 19 when God brought the people out. Moses brought the people out to meet their God and he came down as thunder and lightning on the top of the mountain and they all ran away in fear. So we don't come to that mountain. We come to a host of, of saints. We come to, to, the, to Mount Zion. We come to, in other words, there are people there you're going to have great close fellow. You're going to have to talk to Abraham. I can't wait to talk to Paul. He's, my, he's the one I want to talk to. I relate to Paul. You're going to get to see people that are prayed for you that you didn't know about. You're going to, you're going to get to see, some people are going to get to see children that they, didn't, that, they didn't, that they lost. You're going to get to see, God has all kinds of things for you. Contrast that with hell, this is loneliness and separation. The rewards there. He, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15 talks about rewards for our faithfulness, rewards for finishing our course, for overcoming the temptation to quit. Matthew 25 talks about a faithful servant is given responsibilities. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You've been, you've been faithful with a little. I will make you ruler over much. You'll be having responsibilities. Based on what you did here, you're preparing yourself. You're in training for what you're going to do there. Amen. And ultimately, it's a place of blessing. God's blessing. Hebrews 1.13 says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us. Hebrews, Ephesians 1.11 talks about having an inheritance that's waiting for us. And the greatest of all is to be in His presence. I want to close by reading something. and I, I don't usually do this. This is out of a short story that C.S. Lewis wrote. And it's an allegory about a bu- group of people that were taken on a bus ride from heaven, from hell to heaven to get a look at heaven. And this is not theological, this is not philosophical, but there's a point in here that I want to make about how real that is. So just listen from that point of view. So this is through the eyes of a man who got to heaven to take a look at heaven. At first, of course, my attention was caught up by my fellow passengers who were still groping around in the neighborhood of the bus through the beginning, some of them to walk forward to the landscape with hesitating steps. I'm going to go down to the next chapter, next verse, next uh, uh, paragraph. Then some readjustment of mine, he's adjusting his mind, and some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw that the whole phenomenon, the other way around, the men were as they had always been, this is the people with him, as all men I had known had been perhaps, 
It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different. He's on the outskirts of heaven. The trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much more solid than the things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet, and the stalk would not break. I tried to twist it, but it would not twist. I tugged until the sweat stood out on my forehead, and I'd lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or not like iron, but like a diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf, lying lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort. I believed I did just raise it a little, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood, recovering my breath, great grasps, gasps, and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass, not only between my feet, but through them. I also realized I was a phantom who would give me words to express the terror of that discovery? The reason I read that to you is the point he's making there is that this life, this world, this flesh is very real to us. But compared to that, that is infinitely more real and solid than what we think is real here. That the leaf of a plant he tried to pick up was so dense, so real, that it was like picking up a 75-pound bag of coal. And the grass blades were more real than his feet. And so the blades of grass stuck through that which was less real. It brings to mind when Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples He didn't come and knock at the door and have them let him in, did he? He walked through the walls. Why? Because his body that was coming from heaven now was more real than the mortar and the stones and the brick of the walls. My brother and sister, heaven is very real and hell is very real. Next time we're going to talk about how you get to one or the other and why God has done it this way.